Hi, I'm Drithi Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also what makes them tick. The podcast is for those that are reckoning and tired of being told that you can only have just one focus, just one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm going to chat with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Genevieve Hassan, who's not just the creator of the brilliant podcast Celebrity Catch-Up, Life After That Thing I Did, but is a real expert at saving cash in all manner of ways. So her tips might just be worth listening to. Genevieve, it is wonderful to have you on this podcast. Now, I need to give you a bit of a shout out as you helped me on this podcast journey and gave me some time when I was trying to figure out how to start. But before we delve into what makes Genevieve Genevieve, let's find out a little bit more about Celebrity Catch-Up, which is your podcast, and that's featured some pretty cool guests talking about their celebrity life, things that made them famous, and then what happened. So, as it says on the tin. But who are some of the cool people you've had on your show, and why go for them? That's a good question. The original idea for Celebrity Catch-Up Life After That Thing, I did emphasis on the second half life after that thing i did i was watching an episode of top of the pops 1989 at about one o'clock in the morning on a friday night and martika was on and i thought oh i wonder what's happened to her so i googled it and then i kind of thought oh actually this is this would be a good idea for a podcast to find out where people are now um who you remembered from the 80s and the 90s and because in my previous life i was an entertainment journalist i kind of thought oh well you know i used to do this for a living i can continue doing it this will be easy i'll start doing it and it wasn't easy (laughs) so it's been far from easy but in the process of doing i kind of thought well i want to see if i can get four people to guest i wasn't gonna kind of launch it unless i could get at least four people <laughs> proof of concept that it was going to work and while i was in the process of booking guests i actually had like a different name for the podcast originally the podcast was originally called whatever happened to dot 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 and then as i was thinking about it and developing it more i kind of thought well actually that is kind of like a bit insulting because a lot of people that I speak to, it's not about whatever happened to, it's just they were very famous for doing one thing initially, usually the thing that made them famous, and how that one thing impacted their life going forward after that. For some people that is, they may have left the business, they may have gone on to stratospheric heights, they may be somewhere in between. Either way, like my main peg was the nostalgia feeling of, oh my god I remember them, I wonder what they're doing now, or oh my god I remember them, look what's happened to them now. I just didn't want to insult them by making them like a a, a has-beens podcast. I want to give them more respect than that. They are not has-beens anything. They have been something and they are still something. And just because they released music in the 80s and the music industry works in such a way that it doesn't have space for those people anymore doesn't mean they're any less than what they were before. So I wanted to shine a spotlight on these people and tell their really interesting stories and have people think about them maybe in a different way than thinking, oh, these people used to be famous or thinking of them in a negative way. I wanted people to think you know these are people still and how do you decide these are the people i'm going to go for because the celebrity word is pretty vast so how do you think that's who really fits my podcast or that's what the audience wants to hear the peg is nostalgia so it's got to be people who they have great affection for from the 80s and 90s and early noughties from the world of tv film and music and there's a prime genre of nostalgia because they're the things that make people feel warm and fuzzy you know music is inextricably linked to people's emotions and 
signposts people's times in their lives where they remember I was at school when this came out or I was at uni when this came out or this was the first song to my wedding those kind of things music has the power to do that and same with film as well people feel so strongly about it and have this feeling like oh films aren't as good as they used to be so nostalgia was the peg it's got to be things that people love and that was paramount and then second to that was who could I speak to that has a really interesting story that people probably wouldn't know about. So there's a lot of research that goes into choosing who I want to approach before it even gets to the interview part. I don't just kind of scattergun approach and just send like a bunch of emails out and hope that something sticks and comes back to me. I research everyone first to find out if they've got a good story. And so on my first season, the first person that said yes to me was Chesney Hawks, lovely Chesney Hawks. And people think of him as this one hit wonder, but they don't know about the other side of him after this song that made him very famous the side of the music industry where he got dropped by his label and then what happens to a pop star when that happens he then went and got married he moved to america became a producer and you know he told some stories that you wouldn't expect from chesney hawks you know people see pop stars as on a pedestal and they are not like us normal people but he told this really really sad story about how there was a an artist who he was mentoring he was producing her and he didn't realize that she had health issues and she was also living with them as kind of like a live-in nanny for his three young children at the time and she sadly took her own life and he didn't realize that she was struggling with mental health issues so it came as a big shock to the family and he was saying how telling his children that she had died was one of the most difficult things that he'd ever had to do and it's those stories that I want to bring out of people that it's you know they are human too they still experience the same stuff as everybody else the highs and the lows they're still people just because they're a celebrity doesn't make that any difference so I try to seek out people that had really interesting stories. Karen Parsons, who was Hilary Banks from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Aside from being an actress, she also has a charitable foundation called Sweet Blackberry, where she travels around schools in America and teaches little known positive stories about African-American achievement that are somehow buried in history books, like the person who invented the traffic light was black the first black prima ballerina you know she's been running this foundation for 15 years and people probably don't know about it it's kind of those stories that i did a lot of research to find out who would be interesting before i speak to them because i do get a lot of agents who approach me and say oh we've got so and so do you want them on your podcast and i look and i think i need to research them first to find out if there's a good story i'm just not gonna have anyone i need to make sure there's a good story there that we can draw out in the episode And that actually leads me on to the fact that you've had a pretty extensive journalism career, you still have, but what is it about the industry that keeps you telling stories? A lot of people burn out, a lot of people give up, a lot of people transition elsewhere, but you're still doing it. Why? I like telling people stories, and this will probably tie into a bit of what makes me me. One of those things that I think really makes me me is quality journalism. And I don't know if this is just because of my BBC background, I joined the BBC straight out of the university and then I did 15 years service. And so I was kind of, I guess, what I like to call indoctrinated from a young age into the BBC, BBC News's way of quality journalism and standards. And I joke that even though I've left the BBC six years ago, but if, if you cut me in half like a stick of rock, I still had BBC written in me. Those standards are still ingrained in me. And there's nothing that frustrates me more than I look at a lot of news around today, especially entertainment or celebrity news, and it frustrates me a lot. It's The quality isn't there. It's very gossipy. It's what I call lazy journalism, where it's just let's look at what 
the celebrities have posted on Twitter or Instagram today and somehow write a story out of it. Or this is what so-and-so was wearing on their program today when they were hosting it. Or everybody's saying the same thing about Gogglebox and it'll be some story This I don't know. The one that annoyed me the other day was Gogglebox family's last words before they leave the UK. And it was like, what? That story was about them going on holiday, right? <laughs> and like the headlines are so misleading and it seems to be very trashy. What I try and do, I think, is bringing it back to like a, a quality place where there's good conversations. I'm drawing stuff out of people that they don't normally talk about in interviews. It's not very superficial. We get quite deep. People tell me things I don't normally tell other people. And I think people find value in that. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to tell good stories in a quality way that is interesting, entertaining, educational, <laughs> the BBC values. <laughs> and I hope that people enjoy that. I do think once you've been through the BBC system, it does definitely imprint itself on you. But does that mean that you consider yourself more of a culture journalist rather than entertainment journalist nowadays? I don't think so. I think because of what I do, I see myself as more of like, a, I don't know, interviewer, I guess. That happens to be speaking to people within the TV, film and music world because I managed to draw stuff out of people that they don't normally talk about. It ends up becoming news within the entertainment news sphere rather than culture. I wouldn't say I'm particularly highbrow or anything, but I like to think that the work that I do that I put into my product, the amount of research, the hours, I do at least 24 hours solid research on someone before I have them guessed so that I know them inside and out before I speak to them so that it's not the same stuff that they're talking about constantly all the time so that I bring something different to the table. That's my USPs that I do something different. Taking that element of bringing value to the table and value when it comes to the storytelling, the journalism that you do, I'm just going to segue slightly in terms of I know that you're very passionate about money saving. And I don't think there's anyone, who's, especially as we're in this cost of living crisis, who wouldn't want to know more about that. But what sort of money saving are you a queen of thrift for? I don't look it, but I'm half Chinese. And Chinese people are, let's say, pretty obsessed with money. It's always like, how much do you have? How much did this cost? How much are you saving? Whenever I buy something, the first thing my mum says to me is, how much was it? It's just the way we are. And, uh, and I had my first bank account when I was five. And the Chinese way is that when you gift people things, you know, birthdays, Christmas, Chinese New Year, you gift people money. And as a five-year-old, what are you going to do with money Nothing really. A bank account was open for me and it has been saved ever since. My parents taught me very much about the value of money and having to work for it. I started getting pocket money when I was seven, I think, but I had chores that I had to do for that. And when I say I got pocket money, I got pocket money once a month and I had to do chores for that. And it was things like, you know, feed the cat, take the milk bottles out, do all these like various things. And as I got older, I managed to negotiate my way into pocket money increases, more payment frequency. <laughs> also, the amount of chores I had to do got greater as well. I kind of feel like I was cheaper than my parents getting a cleaner. It was just <laughs> me doing it instead. But then by the time I got to like 14, I negotiated like a, I'd gone from a £10 a month pocket money salary <laughs> to £40 a month but within that £40 I had to buy my monthly bus pass and I was taught the value of budgeting and then after that every pocket money increase I got I had to pay for something else within it so I was always having to budget for my money. That was just ingrained in me. I started working when I was 16, started temping and then I was just temping whenever I could during 
holidays i was always doing it earning money always saving it and my plan with my husband was always that we were going to retire at 50 was always our plan i don't know if you're familiar with the fire community yeah so fire stands for financially independent retire early and it's a community of people who are all working towards financial independence and retiring earlier than societal norm would expect you to retire at 60 65 and i was very fortunate to become part of this community when i was 30 37 38 was when i became financially independent and retired from the nine to five if you like and that was from working hard saving all my money and not spending it and i did the maths and worked out that if i continued to live my life in the frugal way that i was living it then i could retire at 38. i started the podcast for fun and i put an episode out once a fortnight because it would be a full-time job <laughs> if i put it out every week starting the podcast was never about well i want to make money from this I, I didn't expect to make money from it i have no advertising i have no sponsorship i don't make any money out of it whatsoever but i'm in the fortunate position where I don't have to worry about that, which means that I can focus on the quality of the output rather than I need money to make this. Similarly, I've had people approach me wanting to sponsor the podcast who I've said no to because I don't feel like they're the right fit for me and I don't just want to take money for the sake of it. This is the quality and standards bit of me that comes out again. Yeah, everything was working towards I want to be able to retire and I was able to achieve that. So people used to say to me a lot like, oh, well, you must live a really boring life if you're living that frugally and you're not spending money how are you having fun you're not doing anything and i'd say like i'm living my best life and you don't need to spend much money to be able to do that or what age did you decide that was going to happen because you became part of the community in your late 30s but at what yeah. age did you think this is when i'm going to really go at it hard was it from when you were young was it a teenager when you started working well i mean fire hasn't been around that long it was always i think I mean, I've been with my husband for 17, 18 years this year. And I think we'd always thought from when we were, I think like 30, I think our plan was like, well, we're going to retire at 50. That's what our plan was. We don't have children. So that definitely helps. I, I don't think I know anybody in the fire community who has children. Definitely you are not able to do it if you have children because they are very expensive. And then it was just, the, the plan was still, I was going to do it at 50 and then I had a health scare and in the time between kind of like seeing a GP and then having a hospital appointment, I made a lot of life decisions. And one of those was I am not gonna work in jobs that I'm not happy in because life's too short for that. I revised my plan down to, well, I'll, I'll retire at 45 and work part-time until I'm 45. And then the job that I was in just got to this untenable situation where it was like, you know what? I don't need this. I did the maths again and figured actually I could just retire now. I, I don't need this anymore. I don't need this stress in my life. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. So I did. And although, I mean, although I say I've retired, it has allowed me the time to do other things. So obviously like the podcast, I got two kittens. <laughs> I'm their social media PR manager. They are cat micro influencers, so they're monetized on YouTube and people send us stuff to <laughs> to review and stuff. So that generates a passive income as well. So that's okay. <laughs> Pays for their vet bills and stuff. I, I guess it's kind of like how COVID made a lot of people 
rethink their lives and their careers and maybe I should do something different and follow what I want to do. That happened to me, but just before COVID with a health scare. And I guess that probably happens to a lot of people when they have a health scare, but it just accelerated that process for me. Have there been any particular unusual circumstances that you've managed to get yourself in as a, oh, two ways actually, as either a money saver or in terms of the stories that you do? I feel like that you would have many stories to tell. So have you saved unusual things? I mean, at the moment, I've been trying to keep all my toilet rolls empty ones because I saw a money-saving expert that apparently people will buy them. No one so far has bought my 133 loo rolls. But just in case, <laughs> is there anything you've been up to? <laughs> one man's junk is another man's treasure. Or it's probably one person's junk is another person's treasure. Well, I mean, people do buy stuff i remember my husband found somebody who sold like a bucket of their toenails on ebay and somebody actually bought them i mean i don't know why people buy this stuff but people buy this stuff wait is this my husband with air quotes or is this (laughs) (laughs) my actual husband (laughs) i wasn't looking for toenail on ebay what have i done so generally speaking i never pay full price for anything and it's not because i'm tight it's just because I like a bargain. Again, it's probably part of the Chinese in me that feels this way. So whenever I buy anything, I always have a coupon or I buy it through a website that will give me cash back or I buy it with a credit card that will give me cash back or points on something and the points make prizes. And I have kind of like a reputation amongst work colleagues that I'm the money saving person who happens to know, well, you know, the cheapest place to get stuff. But this was like late, probably 2008, 2009. I went on a mission with Tesco Club Card points. I was like, right, I'm going to save as many Tesco Club Card points as I possibly can, because at the time you could, was it one point? 100 points was worth four pounds. And if you're not familiar with Club Card points, you can exchange them for a variety of real world things. You can exchange it for money in the shop, or you can exchange it for other things like AA subscription. I mean, now you can do like laser eye surgery, holidays. And they, at the time they had a deal with Virgin holidays i thought right i'm gonna on a mission i'm gonna try and save as many tesco cloud card points as i possibly can and i did it for like a year concentrated effort for i think i don't even think it was a year to try and save as many as i could there were lots of things that i did to, to accumulate these points and and these things still work by the way so you know if you go to tesco's and you've forgotten your club card you get a receipt and at the bottom of it it says you could have earned 12 points if you uh had used your club card. You can save that receipt and take it back to customer services within 14 days and say, can I have these points added to my card, please? And they go, yep. And you give your card and they add it on. So I did what's called wombling, where you walk around the car park where people have left their receipts in their trolleys or whatever. You pick them up, you take them to customer services and say, can I have these points added to my card? Free points, free money. Literally, it works. You can do it. You can do this at Sainsbury's as well. And mm-hmm. um, for nectar points, other supermarkets are available. So I did that for free points. They had a thing where you could recycle ink cartridges, printer ink cartridges, and you would get, I think it was like 100 points per cartridge, and you could recycle 30 at a time. Um, I would buy empty ink cartridges off eBay. They were, they were like 10 quid to buy 30 empty cartridges and they would send them to Tesco Recycling and I would get 100 times 30, 3,000 points. And bearing in mind, 100 points is worth four pounds. You'd get 120 pounds 
from buying 10 pounds worth of ink cartridges on eBay and sending them off to recycling. They had recycle a mobile phone will give you 500 points equal to 20 quid. It doesn't even have to work or switch on. I'd buy a broken phone on eBay, couple of quid, send it in, buy a job lot, even better value, send it in, exchange it for points. I joined the baby club at the Tesco baby and toddler club because you got extra points when you like specifically bought nappies and all these other baby products. I don't have children at all, but my colleagues had children. So and who needed these products. So I would buy them, get the points and they would give me the money for them. They'd give me the money, but I'd give it to them at a discounted rate. So they weren't paying full price for it. Basically, I just collected all these points and we went on a nine night holiday to New York and Washington, courtesy of Virgin Holidays, flights, hotels, everything paid for, all through Tesco Club Card Points. Wow, that's all I can say is wow. That is commitment. Dedication. That is, <laughs> dedication is commitment. Oh my gosh, I feel a bit like with my loo rolls, a little bit bereft. Um, <laughs> right. You talked about the cats earlier. Now, I yeah. know that you're also a bit of a cat whisperer. I have had a cat whisperer before, but yes. you have some sort of skills where you can help cats be their best cat, I guess. That's that's how I interpreted yes. it. <laughs> can you tell us more about this cat psychology thing that you've got going on? When I retired, I thought, what can I do that would be fun? And I decided to become a cat sitter because I love cats anyway. I'm a crazy cat lady. And I thought, well, I will cat sit because I love cats. And what's better than being paid to play with cats? Right? <laughs> I would do it for free, but yeah, just I'll get paid for playing with cats. So I decided to do that. And I found it very interesting because a lot of the cats that I would meet, the owners would say to me, oh, they're really shy. You'll probably never see them while you're here. They probably won't come and see you. They don't like people, all that kind of stuff. But I have this special set of cat whispering skills that when I meet them, within five minutes of meeting them, they're rolling around the floor, flashing me their tummies, I'm stroking their bellies. And the owners will be so amazed. And I'll say like, oh my God, he doesn't even do this for me. How are you able to do this? I sat a cat last weekend and I took video of me grooming him. And the owner said to me, he's like, oh my God, how, how are you grooming him? He will not let me touch him with this brush. How are you doing it? I have magic skills. But I think a lot of it is... People have cats and they love cats, but people don't really know how cats work. They don't know how cats think and what cats like and don't like and how to treat them properly. I'll, I'll say, what's your cat's favorite toy? And they'll say, oh, he doesn't play with toys anymore. We, we don't have toys, you know, we try to get toys, but they're not interested. And then I will come in with my magic cat toys and the cats will be leaping around like they're kittens again. And I'll send videos and I'm like, oh my God, how have you managed to do this? It's because they don't have the right toys or mainly the problem is that they don't actually interact and engage with their cat. They just let the cat kind of walk around and somebody said, oh yeah, I've got a toy. And it, it was like a, a, a mouse made of like a potato sack with a Cecil tail. It was quite big. It was like the size of a kind of like a large orange. And he went here, play with this. And I said, well, he's not going to play with that. And he was like, no. And I was like, well, no. And you put it on the floor. What's he going to do with it? It's not like a child where he's got an imagination he can do with it. It doesn't move. It doesn't move like prey. Cats want toys that move like prey. And if you just put a mouse that's inanimate on the floor, what's he going to do with it? Of course he's not going to play with it. You need to interact with your cat. And I think people do that when they're kittens because they're fun and cute. And then as they grow older, people just kind of lose a bit of that 
interest and they go to work and they just stop paying as much attention. They think, well, the cat's just sleeping, so I'm not going to do anything. And the cat kind of just gets on with it. But then they, they just assume their cat's this one way when actually they're not. They want play and they want attention and they want fuss and they like all these things. I'll have other people that say, you know, there's other problem behavior that the cat will exhibit, doesn't do certain things. I had one cat who, after he ate, he just sat in the hallway and wouldn't come into the living room where everyone was. And first visit, I said, oh, you know, the cat is doing this. And they said, oh, yeah, he does that. He just doesn't like coming into the living room. Within two days, I was getting him in the living room because I spent time with him, sitting with him. A lot of this is just about spending time with the cat. I sat with him in the hallway. Basically, I forced myself onto cats <laughs> to make them make them trust me and then I make them do new behavior that they then keep doing for the rest of time. <laughs> I sat next to him in the hallway till he got used to me and then I would just move a little bit closer to the living room and then so he'd come follow me a bit closer and closer until he was like oh she's in the living room I'll sit with you in the living room. I train my cats to do high fives for treats. Mm -hmm. I do this with cats that I sit. I've done it with my own cats. I can go into a, someone else's cat and I can train them the fastest I've had was a cat picking it up in 18 hours. The other cats normally take two or three days to learn how to high five. Cats that will like pee in inappropriate places and they don't know why. And it's like, well, you only have one litter tray when you should have two, or you've put it in the wrong place, or you've put it in a place that's got this weird smell and they don't like it and they want to go somewhere else. Cats who don't want to be picked up or they're a bit bitey and scratchy. It's like, well, it's because you're using your hands to play with them. Don't use your hands. You should be doing these other things with your cats. And I was going to say, is this all intuitive or like, did you go to cat school or like, what, how did you pick all this up? Was it from being with cats? I'm not going to lie. We do watch a lot of episodes of My Cat from Hell, <laughs> where we, we where just from watching it, picked up like kind of like the tips of what Jackson Galaxy says is, you know, this is how you should treat your cat. You know, this is what cats want. They want engagement. They want play. They need to play with toys that seem like prey. This is how you deal with problem behavior. And it's about spending time with the cat and getting them to trust you and all that kind of stuff. And I've just taken that into the job of cat sitting, which apparently makes me magic with cats. But it's fine. I like it. I'm like a five-star rated cat sitter where I live. So... <laughs> It's also created its own monster because it means that sometimes I'm like insanely busy where I'm having to do it. Like I, I think last year I worked every day from beginning of June to October without a day off. You can't have a day off because people are away. You've got to go seven days a week and feed a cat. And I was juggling at one point four cats at the same time breakfast and dinner, which basically means as soon as you kind of finish, you only have like a couple of hours. I spent an hour with each cat both times so you spent four hours in the morning and you have a couple of hours break before you then start again for like the second like it's like an eight hour day doing four cats and thought I can't do that again I need to say no but it just means that I'm very much in demand and I don't want to say no to people because I like all my cats but I, I've had to put my foot down this year that <laughs> I can't juggle podcasting and cat sitting at the same time as impossible the wonderful Genevieve Hassan creator of the brilliant podcast celebrity catch-up life after that thing I did do you have an interdisciplinary life? Because I would love to hear from you. And maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter. It's called Have You Thought About? And can be found via www.drucyshaw.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music. <laughs>